Hello, everybody. Hey, guys. So this week, we are going to have another roundtable. We are joined by my good friends and colleagues, Mona Valeriano and Jessica Kramer, who come at therapy from different approaches than us. Which is going to be super exciting because as fun as we are and amazing as we are, it's nice to hear other perspectives. That's right. And we don't know everything. I mean, sort of, but whatever. (laughs) So here's to knowing a little bit of something you didn't know before. We hope you enjoy it. Cheers. Welcome. I am Doug Friedman. And I am Meredith Levy. And this is Your Mental Breakdown. The roundtable edition of our podcast. That's right. And we are joined today by two of my friends and colleagues. We have Mona Valeriano, who is a... LCSW and works with eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is a mouthful to say EMDR. She also does EFT for couples, which is emotionally focused therapy, comes from a more psychoanalytic background than Meredith and I do. So you'll get to hear a slightly different perspective on things and general overall awesomeness when it comes to mind body work with clients. Welcome, Mona. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And we also have Jessica Kramer, who is a somatic experiencing practitioner and is in the process of becoming a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's also worked as a doula and a midwife assistant and specializes in working with new mothers and babies and overcoming and processing trauma, as well as mind-body connections. So welcome to you, Jessica. Thanks. Jessica, does does that mean you've seen a lot of babies come out? A lot of babies come out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and is is that traumatic? No, it shouldn't be. It often is, but it it definitely does not have to be. And hmm. it wasn't for me. It was wonderful. Oh, fun. Good. Many analysts believe that the birth process for the baby is the first traumatic process to go through. I want to hear all about this. Hmm. <laughs> so really? excited to hear about psychoanalytic anything. <laughs> <laughs> and psycho psychoanalytic, isn't that really just going back to the past and back to like early childhood and early relational things and looking at things that were maladaptive to kind of, I guess, reprocess and and do it in a more adaptive way now? Yeah, absolutely. But it's it, a lot of the analytic theory really focuses on years zero to three years old, which is like the unconscious implicit memory as well wow. and how that sort of basically shows up in the present in so many different ways. It's very mm. cool. It's very cool. So psychoanalysis is, is that different than like analysis where you go five days a week and like lay on the couch or whatever, and you just talk and then there's a difference. Psychoanalytic, like psychoanalysis is typically like the three to five weeks on the couch, but primarily we can refer to ourselves as like psychodynamic therapists when we see clients weekly, but we sort of like pull from analytic theory. But okay. psychoanalysis is rad. I mean, yeah. really, if you really want to get deep into the like primitive states of your own unconscious, therapy mm. three to five days, five days a week is going to help you get there. Oh, yeah. I just don't know if I do. Like I do, but I don't. I'm not sure. It's like going to see a psychic. Do I want to know? I'm not sure. I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I'm not comparing a psychic to like a psychoanalysis, but. Well, it, it's there whether or not you want to look at it, right? Yeah. Yes. 
that's one of the draws, I think, even of, of Jungian psychology is making the subconscious conscious, right? Is bringing this stuff to our awareness because when it's in your awareness, then you can do something about it. Right. Unless you're tortured by that awareness because the behavioral change is like very difficult. So I think that's where some people get really tripped up, right? It's exactly. like, it, it can actually create more dissonance to know the root uh, or the etiology of things and then be like, I can't, but I can't do anything about it. This is like addiction plays into this in a really big way, but we're mm. talking about trauma today. So I don't want to digress too much. <laughs> that can be traumatic too. That's true. That's true. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Maybe I'll come see. I want to see you, Mona. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's funny because you're you're talking about working with people going back to zero to three years old. And Jessica, you work with people that are zero to three years old. Oh my God, you do? <laughs> I do. And, and I do work with a lot of adults with early developmental disruption. So the adults that come to me are often people who have chronic health issues and other sort of chronic things that don't have a known etiology or aren't responding to typical therapeutic approaches, whether it's psychotherapy or medical stuff. And usually that came to exist in early development. So it's kind of similar to what Mona's talking about. It's just a looking at it through the body, not so much in terms of like making the unconscious conscious. Ooh. So this is what somatic is. I mean, somatic experiencing is a modality that was initially developed for shock trauma with the basic premise that anytime there's a stressor, we have an impulse to protect ourselves through fighting or flighting. And if you don't get to do that, it gets stuck in the body. And though the event has ended, we don't perceive ourselves to be safe. We don't perceive that it's ended. And the reasons the self-protective response can end up not moving through can be there were multiple impulses simultaneously. So a simple example I give is like a car accident where our bodies are actually not meant to be in that kind of motion. So a car accident will have always two simultaneous directions that are happening. If you're hit from behind, there's both going to be a forward movement in your body and a backward movement. Or if you're hit from the side, it'll be two sides. And so you may simultaneously have an impulse to look behind you and look in front of you, to brace in front of you and brace behind you. And you just can't do both of those things at once. So then it's kind of trapped inside because we can't do two things at once. That's a really simple example of the way shock trauma can come to be. And then what we're doing is setting the conditions that allow what didn't get to happen earlier to happen now so that the body begins to perceive the safety that is present now. Hmm. That's part of the release. Like a, a lot of this comes from Peter Levine, right? Right. And him observing animals in the wild that that predator and prey. So that fight, flight or freeze mechanism that comes up. And I remember one aspect of it, I don't know it too well, was him, I think, seeing or observing animals shaking something off or just shaking in the wild after an, an event like that. Is that part of the, the reset process? That can be a kind of byproduct that happens in the sense that when there's a stressor, our body will send a bunch of blood into big muscles to do something about it. 
our thighs, our arms, our heart, our lungs start working really hard. If we end up going into a freeze, we don't end up using that oxygenated, nourished blood that's in the big muscles. And so there's this kind of tension that's lying in wait. And what can then happen through the shaking process, what animals do is it's essentially using up those stores that are waiting to be used. And then Mm. we can move on. Like literally shaking it off, like the shaking, like when your dog shakes it off, like exactly. Yeah. But what is important to say is that from my the work I do is because I'm oriented to early development, it looks very different where it's Mm. not about there was a traumatic event per se that needs to be moved through in a simple way, but actually that the nervous system didn't develop a foundation of being able to perceive safety, that it didn't learn that there is safety in connection because maybe it wasn't safe in connection. Maybe there was a lot of misattunement. So there are a lot of adaptive strategies. Maybe the mother's, for example, the mother's nervous system never learned to perceive safety. So the baby is kind of cueing off of the caregiver's nervous system and the caregiver in subtle ways is signaling that there's danger. And Mm. so the baby's nervous system adapts that even when nothing is wrong, their their system, their amygdala, it's like searching for what's wrong. And so that's the orientation of my practice is not moving shock traumas through though. What we find is that people with early developmental disruption tend to have more shock traumas. But what I'm looking at is how do we actually get your nervous system, your physiology to learn what safety is, what a little bit of stress is, what a lot of stress is, what danger is, that those are all different things. And many of us didn't ever, like our amygdala, our physiology didn't learn that. Right. How do I know, for example, all those things you just said, like, did my mom have safety whatever you just said, sorry, I can't repeat it, but do people come to you and say like, I don't really know if I had trauma or zero to three or, you know, whatever, like, can you check me out and tell me what you think? Probably it is a thing. That's not typically why people come to me. (laughs) Although that's probably more typically how they come to you, right, Mona? Yeah. And also I was going to say like, that's the analytic process, right? Like it's, it's kind of amazing to hear Jessica say this because it's like, it's the, now it's the biology that confirms analytic theory. I think people get so frustrated with the analytical world because they're like, stop blaming your parents. And it's like, okay, we're not in the business of blaming our parents. But what she just Mm. talked about is like, there's the mirror neuron experience between the mother and the child. And it's not just the mirror neurons. It's the, like a child is basically absorbing the mother's CNS system, which is fascinating. And it's happening all on an unconscious level. And so all of a sudden you find yourself on the couch years later in your adult life. And you're like, I don't understand why I never feel safe. I don't understand why I have crippled insomnia and can't self-soothe in this experience. Right. So it's fascinating to hear you talk about that because it's, it's where like the physiology actually makes a lot of sense of the analytic theory, which is cool as hell. This is super cool as hell for for me because I put you guys together thinking we're just talking about trauma. And what we're talking about now is such a nice convergence and something that listeners have probably heard me say, I use Kim's line for this, which was 
is this thing right now actually unsafe or does it remind me of a time when I felt unsafe? And if so, can I remember that I survived it? That idea might be coming from, oh, it might not even be me feeling unsafe. It might be the environment from zero to three that I was in that felt unsafe. And my body never actually learned that it is okay. It is safe. Well, that's another thing I'm wondering, would I necessarily know if I walked through life feeling unsafe or would that be potentially something that is exhibited by my behaviors or underlying things, but I'm not, I don't walk around like fearful at every corner. When you say unsafe, what exactly does that necessarily mean? I mean, for me, it is a subjective thing, right? There's not some like pure objective, oh, this is what safe is. This is what healthy is. The people who come to me are often debilitated by their fears or debilitated by their, their physiology that they psychologically, they think they're fine. And physiologically, their body flattens them at these times that they were like, everything was going great. And all of a sudden I'm flat out in bed for a week. And I don't know Mm -hmm. why that happens or everything was fine. And then they had a baby and they are panicked all the time Mm -hmm. or they don't feel connected with their baby or their baby isn't sleeping or, you know, things like that are going on. And so for me, it's not about figuring out the answers but really about tending to what's arising in your felt experience, in your lived experience. And how do we make you feel more whole? How do we make you feel more functional? How do we make you feel more connected with yourself and connected with others? And I think it also answers the idea of, I think what you, Mona, what you were saying before, like, it's not about blaming the parents, right? It's just about recognizing this is what happened and this is what you're carrying consciously or most likely unconsciously physiologically in your body and what do we do with it now bringing it to awareness helps but bringing it to awareness so that we can blame or point a finger does nothing you know i mean we might be angry about it and that's that's okay we can process that anger we're all therapists we can talk about that too but it's really going all right well how can we rewire how can we show you that you are safe how can we adjust in a more adaptive way and how do we want to be now going forward? So kind of to answer your question, Meredith, if you're not going through life, if you're not moving forward the way you want to, if there is some anxiety or some discomfort or whatever there is, which probably describes 99% of us, then chances are there is something from early development of zero to three that has stuck with you knowingly or unknowingly, most likely unknowingly. Yeah. So for both of you guys, can you answer how would somebody know, or even how would I refer one of my clients or how would somebody out there listening know, I want to go do some somatic work, or I want to go do some, some EMDR or some. Well, or heavy analysis of seeing somebody three to five times a week, right? Well, I just mean specifically for Mona's, what kind of work she does or what kind of work Jessica does. Yeah. Gotcha. I think with, especially with EMDR, so many people get stuck in these like reenactment loops. This client, I've been working with this client for two years and we keep finding ourselves back in these same reenactments. And like something is just so stuck here. What do you mean by reenactments? The best analogy of this is like the Sisyphusian quality of like, you're, you're just doing this same behavior over and over and over again. 
And it's like, you're, you're, you're always attracted to the narcissist. You keep going back. to. Oh yeah. I need to come see you for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Or, or like you just, you get stuck in this like horrific depressive loop that is just like, it's just, you cannot get out of it. The EMDR, this is where I really like how EMDR pairs well with analytic theory. Cause again, you were talking Meredith earlier of like, what do you do when you know, but your behavior doesn't change. EMDR is really, really, really beautiful of actually making those two connect, right? Will you tell us what EMDR is also at some point? Okay. So it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy, which is like (laughs) a crazy mouthful. The, The craziest thing about EMDR is that like no one really totally understands how it works, which is insane. You're like, you're like, okay, how is it possible that, and I I might be wrong. Maybe there's like research on this now that's changed this, but you know, you're like, there's no way that a bilateral eye movement processing can actually help integrate trauma. Like you must be out of your mind. That's crazy. I was a huge skeptic when I went into my training because I was like, there's absolutely no way this works. And then came out and was like, whoa, this works. But I think that the idea is that when we bilaterally stimulate the brain, when we address trauma, we're using the whole brain to process the trauma. Whereas in like trauma gets stuck. The quickest way of explaining this is like, if you look at the neurobiology of trauma, oftentimes you've got like the limbic system activating when something hits the prefrontal cortex and they're not actually integrated. It's not like an integrated trauma map in the brain. You're Mm -hmm. like, all of a sudden you're walking down the street and you see someone that's reminiscent of a previous previous trauma experience and you go into a total flashback. It's Mm -hmm. basically disconnected with the trauma experience that once happened prior. So the whole idea with trauma is we want to actually connect it to the trauma narrative so that it has the container, right? This is where we go back to like what it means to have the safety of something. So EMDR is really good at integrating those experiences neurobiologically because you actually have the limbic system actually in communication with the prefrontal cortex. There are MRI studies that really are showing that when you do the bilateral stimulation of the brain, the whole brain turns on. So explain a little bit about the tools. There's multiple ways to bilaterally stimulate the brain. So you'll, you'll often see the like, I'm doing it right now. No one can see me. <laughs> that there's like this eye scan bar. Like that's one of the ways that you, you do it. You're basically darting your eyes from one side of your head to the other side. And you're doing it in a rep- repetitive motion. You can do it with taps. You can do it the same way. There's audio, there's pulsers. There's multiple ways to stimulate the brain. A lot of times when people go like hiking or walking, they're like, oh, I finally had this revelation. When you're walking, you are bilaterally stimulating your brain. It's the left, the right, the left, the right. It's, it's a very similar dynamic of like, you're going you're gonna to have different insights and awarenesses when you're walking and thinking than when you're sitting in a chair. We should just do chalk therapy and hike at the same time. <laughs> it's, it's interesting though, because even now when we have virtual sessions and we're all doing this, you know, because of the pandemic, a lot of clients that I work with are walking as we're having our sessions and they love it. It's, it's like, it brings you back to when I used to do walk therapy, not quite hike therapy with clients, or even just have yeah. them tap on their, on their legs, like one leg than the other. I don't know EMDR very well, but I know just, just that, that sort of bilateral brain activity frees you up for something else. 
Yeah. I mean, again, the idea is that it, it turns on the whole brain. And when you're using mm. the whole brain to process things, it becomes more integrated. Like the best way of explaining this is like in trauma, you know how, like the quintessential example, and I'm just going to bring up sexual trauma because it's the one I work with the most. It's like, you've been sexually traumatized and you're like, but it was my fault right? You hear this, the shame is so insidious mm, in sexual yeah, trauma that yeah. you're constantly like caught in this loop of like, I know it's not my fault. My intellectual mind knows it's not my fault, but well, like, I, it's my fault. Like it is my fault. I did something. I, I know I did. Right. It's like, okay, the EMDR is going to actually help have one brain, the intellectual, rational brain, start speaking to the emotional process so that you can come out of an EMDR session and be like, oh, it really, really wasn't my fault. I mean, this is, I mean, obviously oversimplifying, <laughs> simplifying, and this is like a very clean example of like, oh my God, EMDR is going to like right. get me unstuck. But it can, it really does do that. So it's pretty wild. Can you guys for a second talk about, because they're one of the examples that you give, you know, of a sexual trauma, there's a difference in trauma, I think, between complex trauma or a single incident trauma, right? Or trauma over a period of time. Like, Jessica, you were talking about the example of the car crash, which is one that Peter Levine gives in his book too, right? And sometimes there is a single event that's a trauma or we think, you know, somebody goes to war and they come back with PTSD and we don't really understand what that means because there could be complex trauma, trauma over a period of time that's not as big one time, but is over a period of time just as detrimental, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that EMDR can actually be most effective with like the big T traumas, but it's also really effective mm. in working with the like quote unquote, the small T traumas. But a lot of people do also say that EMDR is contraindicated for complex PTSD. That's a whole other complicated dialogue, but so you, you have to be careful when you're, you're doing EMDR with people who come and present with complex PTSD. You have to like really proceed slowly and carefully because the EMDR sessions can sort of open up another trauma and open up another trauma and open up another trauma. And then we're back into like, I actually think that maybe somatic experiential work is even more powerful. And maybe Jessica, you can speak about this for complex PTSD, because you almost have to help them have the physiological containment first. Mm. And EMDR does address that, right? We have to go over all of the coping strategies, the resilient factors before we can even begin a reprocessing. But I, I feel like somatic experience, experiential work is like a deeper way to actually get into that the safety that even is necessary to even begin something like EMDR. So one of the questions I always, cause people are always asking me, what's the difference between what you do and EMDR? And I'm always like, I don't really know. Cause I don't really understand EMDR. It's two sides of the brain. I don't know. That's not what we're focusing on. <laughs> um, but so one of the things I wonder is for EMDR, do you need to know sort of what the trauma is? Does it mm -hmm. have to be a, oh, here's the thing that happened to me that I want to work on? There's a whole protocol for EMDR that really sort of walks you through different core beliefs, right? So you, you might have a core belief. The core belief is I'm damaged goods, right? But you don't understand where that comes from or how that, but you do, you, you start to associate, you're like, okay, so when was the last time you felt like you were damaged goods? And then you call upon a memory and then you sort of start to have a map. Like it becomes your roadmap for 
working through traumas, but you don't necessarily have to know what the trauma is. You just kind of have to come in and feel stuck. You're like, why do I feel stuck? And then part of the work is sort of arriving at a memory. And it could be a memory of like, I passed a coworker in the hallway and I got pissed off at that coworker. I don't know why, but you get to start there. You don't have to know anything Mm -hmm. until you actually begin. Well, that's one of the things that I'm wondering is because, so when I went to treatment, they did EMDR on us or we did EMDR. And that's where my skepticism came in because it did nothing for me unless there's some deep seated changes that happen that I'm unaware of. But because here's the thing, like, I don't, that's my question about trauma. Like I went in and there was nothing specifically that I identify as a trauma. They asked like, well, have you had this experience in your life and this experience? And I was like, yes, yes, yes. And yet I don't give a shit about any of them. I don't find that they impact my daily life or my functioning. Sure. Maybe I've repressed them all, but like, whatever. And so they were like, pick one and let's like work on it. And I was like, okay, we did our first session. And at the end, they're like, I don't remember how sad do you feel about it now? And I'm like, same. And then they were like, next session, how do you feel about it? And I was like, still not sad. And then the whole idea was like, well, eventually when you think about it, like you won't be sad. And I'm like, first of all, I don't think about it. And second of all, like (laughs) when I do, it's like, I could probably sit there long enough and make myself cry, but like, whatever, you know? So after that, I just was like, meh. (laughs) I mean, I've just speaking to you guys, like I've had five really bad car accidents in my life that were not my fault. And I'm like, okay, concussions. Like I'm so lucky, knock on wood, like nothing horrible. But in my mind, those are way more traumatic than all the other shit I went through that the EMDR people wanted me to discuss. And I don't know if it was because I was in treatment and they sucked and they just wanted me to like talk about something, which is very possible. So I don't know. It would have been way more cool to do it on one of those traumas to sort of see what actually happens if you were to address like a car accident trauma in EMTR. Cause it's also like, it sounds like from the description of it, you were going in being like, well, I don't really have an emotional reaction to this. It's like, well, that's not necessarily what you'd want to do EMDR on. So even if it was a considered a big T trauma for the world, but I don't connect with it or associate with it as anything that I have an emotional connection to. Right. But I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but Mona, what you're saying is if you looked at one of those car accidents and looked at like that trauma, which you said was traumatic for you, like that, that was a, a, for you, Meredith, a big T trauma. Right. If you looked at that, but then you were able to uncover some of your patterns, some of the pathways, some of the core beliefs, then it might connect to other traumas that you've experienced and you'd be able to look at them that way. Yeah. Like Meredith, you would have probably, I would have encouraged you to choose something that was initially emotionally provocative. They hadn't happened by the time I went and (laughs) there, there wasn't anything I was emotionally connected to. So I feel like at that point, should I have just been like, no, thanks. Well, no, here's the thing. Look, first of all, this is where analytic theory really like Uh, it really supports EMDR because every client I work with and I do EMDR with their defense mechanisms also show up in the reprocessing. 
Fine. You have to work through layers of defenses in order to get underneath. And I'm not sometimes, And sometimes it can take a few tries to eat. And like, if nothing happens from it, that's still information to me. Cause I'm like, is dissociation present? Is there a defense mechanism present? Mm-hmm. Is there, are there, is there resistance present? And all of those things still show up in the context of EMDR. Every EMDR session is information. Totally. So it's, that's again, where these like really, these work together really beautifully because if you're, if you're presenting with a lot of resistance, EMDR is going to show that. And so then you get to really talk and address the resistance in a big way. And I have, I have clients now, and some of them with complex PTSD, where I have been trying to sort of integrate EMDR for them with if like treatment for years. And it's, it's slow, it's slow moving. Right. Right. Mm. Is somatic in my mind, you're like touching the body. Is that true or not? In, in non-pandemic times, I do use a lot of touch work though. Okay. I've found that it sort of doesn't like working on zoom. It's actually completely fine. I can work with the body just as well. I can track with almost as much nuance. That's so cool. As when I'm actually touching though, people miss getting the contact because of course, when we're dealing with early disruption, we're dealing with where touch was not met in the right way. I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about as Meredith, you're asking questions and Mona, you're responding is also there are the modalities and then there's the skill of the practitioner all the totally. time. You know? And mm-hmm. what I think is really common in any modality is so many therapists, practitioners with their agenda and yep. the mm-hmm. difficulty for them to actually receive the individual they're working with where they're at and be willing to be curious and discover with them and find out what's going on, which is just something that I think is so important. And not that every somatic experiencing practitioner knows how to do this, but it's something that really taught me to do that, to to not come at things with, well, let's look at what happened. Let's look at why you have the struggles you have, but actually what is showing up right here, right now, anytime. And I think that may be where Mona, you're saying that SE might be better for complex trauma is that particularly those of us with the looking at the lens of early development, which Peter Levine talks about a bit, but it's more of like an offshoot from that taught by a woman named Kathy Kane, where Mm -hmm. it's really looking at the subtleties of how it's arising and not going to the problem, first of all, but actually going to, it's like one of the things that came to mind, Meredith, when you were saying, I I just didn't connect with that is then, well, what do you connect with? And, and so that would be my starting place. Uh Where is there a connection for you as an individual? Where is there a connection for you in your life? And not where is there the biggest connection? Cause then plenty of Mm -hmm. people will say, no, the whole problem is I don't feel connection. It's like, okay, well, do you feel connected to a cup of tea when you're drinking it? Do Mm. you feel, you know, do you feel connected Mm -hmm. with like the softness of a pillow? Do you, and and just discovering some tea, (laughs) 
<laughs> Careful, you're freaking her out now. <laughs> she's like, oh my God, she's touching my soul. She knows, she knows me. me. <laughs> to dip into those teeny little connections and then invariably what comes up are the teeny little disconnections. And so mm. we're never mm. working into the difficulty and the struggle more than we're working into the resilience and the pleasure and what works. Yeah. And, and the system and how the system responds. Like I think of when people talk to me about trauma work and I do some trauma work with clients, I think something important to note is uh, SE or EMDR can be adjunct to therapy. Like I send a lot of clients to go do some EMDR work for a specific trauma or they might do some SE work if they've had something and we can tell that it, oh yeah, that fight or flight or fight, flight, freeze is, is still locked in. It's a great adjunct or, or complement to regular therapy. Often it's a resistance that I've heard from clients that they don't want to talk about a trauma. They don't want to open up the floodgates because then all this stuff is going to come mm-hmm. out. And <laughs> okay, if you don't, then all the stuff is just going to stay in there and get backed up. If you've got a clogged drain, I don't care how great a liquid you're pouring down the drain. If there's a clog, there's a clog and it's going to get backed up and it's going to be horrible. If you unclog the drain, then it can flow naturally. And that's, to me, what we're talking about is how to deal with the the clog or the flow, not to deal with the one thing that created the trauma or the one event or, or the, the event over time, whatever that might be. Isn't there a reality that there can be a better time than another time? Like in DBT, we get to the PTSD at the very end of DBT because we want to make sure that people have the skills to be able to deal with what comes up after we open up the floodgates of the PTSD. So I don't think right before someone's planning their 500 person wedding might be the time to all of a sudden like dig into their trauma and like unclog it. Right. I feel like there are better times than others maybe to address it. I'm not, I don't know. What do you guys think? 100%. I mean, I think again, it's sort of back to the the conversation of like, you really want healthy coping in place. If you, if you Uh go in without healthy coping, it's bad news right? It's bad news. You're going to dysregulate. You're going to re-traumatize in a lot of ways. So Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. importance of basically finding the containment that whatever client needs first is imperative. It's it's an imperative addition to the work. So like DBT is awesome. Like, like really learning the emotion regulation tools, the distress tolerance tools, the mindfulness skills is like such a cool basis and beginning for that work. So you, you want that you really do. And clients choose, they get to choose when and how, and back to resistance, right? Resistance is just, it's a healthy protective defense. You don't want to take away someone's defense, right? You, you have to work Mm -hmm. with it. You have to be careful with it. You have to be compassionate with it, kind with it, and it will resolve when it needs to. And, you know, or they'll hit the rock bottom and be like, all right, Right. we got to unplug the drain. Like I can't, I can't keep doing this. We have to, we have to unclog the drain. Clients will know when it's the right time ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. And therapists will know if they push too hard and they push at all, sometimes they'll push a client over, they'll push a client out. A lot of this too is you need to establish just an overall basic therapeutic relationship of, of trust. If somebody's coming specifically for EMDR, specifically for SE, and they might say, here's what I want to specifically work on, that's different. But if we're just talking about something coming up and coming out naturally, then yeah, we're not going to instantly open a floodgate and let all this stuff pour out. 
any therapist might be able to see that that work is ahead, but it would be a disservice to the client to go, okay, let me just rip this bandaid off. Let me, let me expose this clogged drain to you and, and say, here's where it's coming from. Here's why you're stuck. It's too much too soon. Like you said, Mona, they don't have that baseline of being able to, to actually process and, and cope with it. I love what you said, Mona, about, you know, those defenses are healthy and that we don't want to take them away. And I, you know, the way I conceptualize things, I'm never digging in. That feels like a violation of their healthy self-protective response. And it also presumes that I know what they need better than Mm -hmm. they know what they need. Mm -hmm. And while I'm there with a lot of expertise and it's my job to have a treatment plan and see a trajectory and anticipate certain things, I'm not calling the shots on Mm -hmm. what's happening for them and their life and their reparative process. That's something for us to discover together. And so that's where I really always want to be meeting people where they're at in the moment. And yeah, there are better times for certain things, but for the most part, that's what their system is telling us. Like if I'm paying attention to what their heart rate is doing and what their respirations are doing and what their vocal tone is doing and what their facial expressions are doing, they may not know it, but their whole being is knowing it, even Mm -hmm. if they don't cognitively know it. And it's my job to be paying attention and saying this might be too much. And certainly, you know, if it's, if somebody has a big thing happening in the next week and we and something starts to come up that's really big, it starts to come up organically, I might say, hang on, I just want to check in. Right. Because something big is starting to move. And do we actually want this much movement to happen right, right. now? Right. So I have a question. So trauma in general. So I have come across some clients, maybe even some friends, but definitely the handful of clients who seem to identify themselves basically as trauma. They walk through the world with, I can't, I can't, I can't because my trauma. And with a lot of other things, I am not a trauma specialist. I don't even know what that looks like, to be honest. I always tell people, like I draw a pie chart and I say like, you are not an alcoholic. You are not a a this, a that. Here's the pie chart here's 10 different slices. Like, what are you? Maybe like one sliver is an alcoholic, one sliver is a, but I find that a lot of times or not a lot of times, sometimes trauma survivors, trauma victims can identify the whole pie as I have experienced trauma. And a lot of times it's, so therefore I can't work or therefore I can't be in a relationship or therefore I can't. And it's often because of that trauma. And I'm not saying it's not accurate a lot of the times. And then I also find, and again, it's not, I try not to judge it, but how do you know whether stubbing your toe was a trauma or whether sexual violation was a trauma or whether, and I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, I'm just wondering, cause you guys are saying sometimes we don't know, like you're talking about someone walking past someone in the hall and getting triggered and get, or getting pissed and you don't know why. And then you go back and do this work. And then somebody may come in and be like, well, I figured it all out. I know why I'm pissed at the coworker. It's because I had this huge trauma when I, you know, and then it all makes sense. And then, but then that becomes their presentation. That makes sense. 
There's like eight questions in that. There's there's not one question. There's at least eight questions in that, Meredith. Can I address some of those though? Any, any. So just sort of like my immediate thoughts is like, and we're, we're talking about sort of trauma as like, there's a lack of containment and safety. So what you often find with people who identify with the trauma pathology or narrative or whatnot, or even PTSD is they've found a container and a diagnosis. And that in itself can be healing. I think what you're also saying is like, when does it like turn from healing to basically another form of not taking responsibility for your life? Exactly. Yes. Again, that's another form of resistance. And if every behavior is a need trying to be met, I say this constantly with my clients. So if someone is like fixated on trauma, 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 they're still seeking the emotional validation or support around their subjective trauma. And so there's something that hasn't been met yet, usually around empathy, usually around um, the containment or the validation they need. For many people, especially with like serious, like neglect, abuse, sexual trauma that was like horrific. I mean, it's all horrific, but just like, especially those with complex PTSD. And I know you work in BPD, BPD with a lot of people with borderline. So you'll see a huge connection between complex PTSD and people with borderline, right? Mm -hmm. They need like potentially so much time in the space of validation before they can even dip into their own responsibility. Mm -hmm. So that can be kind of painful for treatment providers because you're like, how much empathy can I really give? But I think on some level, what they are communicating is like Jessica was saying, they need the soft pillow for longer. They need the soft pillow and the warm tea a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. And then, you know, at some point, maybe you'll move into the responsibility piece. But yeah, I think people can get stuck in that space because finally they've found something that explains all of the ways that they feel tortured and there's an attachment to it. And then you have to, over time, explore the secondary gain of how the attachment to that very thing is also part of the problem. And then you can relinquish it over a time. Yeah. Again, this is where analytic theory can really join yeah. beautifully with some right. of the EMDR work. It makes sense. And the problem, well, what I find is it's often not the horrible, serious neglect and, you know, what you're saying. It is, you know, some of that. But what I find is, unfortunately, when people do attach to the trauma and they feel safe in figuring out it's the trauma then they tend, or I've seen them push people away a lot with how much they talk about it or how much they utilize it as a reason for things. I've seen it with often adults who maybe live at home or they're with their families or whatever. And the families are like, I'm done enough. Stop talking about it and do like, and that becomes the problem where they're friends or they just keep pushing people away and that's where I'm like, no, of course, I'm so good at the validation and the baby steps and all that. But then I also want to be like, you are annoying people. And I've had to say that before. You are talking about the unconscious process of like a lot of people with trauma do believe at the core that they are not lovable and they are not worthy. So they are going to reenact that interpersonally in their relationships. So you're, you're basically, you know, they're doing it through the mask of this is my trauma narrative or this is my victimization around the trauma narrative. 
but the outcome is still the same. They're going to push people away and they're pushing people away because they need to confirm the trauma narrative that they are unlovable and unworthy. Again, going back, this is the Sisyphusian quality of this reenactment over and over again. You're getting pushed away in the transference as their treatment provider. And guess what? It shows up with us just like it shows up with (laughs) everyone else in their lives. So we get to use the countertransference, right? Of, oh, you know, like I am agitated right now. I'm in the presence of this pushback. And that's part of the work of working with a lot of people with borderline and complex PTSD is they're going to try to push everyone away until they believe that they are in fact lovable and worthy individuals. Or the confirmation bias, I've pushed everyone away. See, I told you I'm not lovable, right? Totally. And that, that's that narrative they're stuck in. And my clients try that a lot. I'm like, nope, I'm not pushing you away. I'm not, it's not happening. You're amazing. You're great. And, and then at some point, a few clients in my work, I'm like higher level of care. Right. I mean, I think as a treatment provider, it's like, they don't want you to say you're great. You're amazing. They want you to stay in the space of you are unlovable. Right. Uh And so you kind of have to join them in that space, not in a way of like confirming that they're unlovable. (laughs) You got to go, you got to walk through the darkness with them in that regard. Totally, It's an uncomfortable place to be, but it's an important one in terms of the evolution of getting them to the other side. It's kind of like Jessica keeps talking about the somatic experience of moving through. It's like, this is the analytic clinical way of also moving through. You have to get in to move through. So we all have to work together. Basically, we have to like take our clients and then put transfer to Mona, to Jessica, to Doug, to me, because we all need (laughs) to work together in order to like really, really heal. That's all what I'm hearing here. (laughs) <laughs> I, I think it's really highlighting that mind body connection is, is huge. Totally. You know, and it happens unconsciously and consciously. And that's one of what you're talking about, about how a, a client might, or Meredith, when you were saying like, they, they get so invested in this is my trauma narrative and, and this is, this is my truth, or this is my coping. This is what I do. Yeah. Th- that's what you do. And is that what you want to continue to do? There is some way to be different and to have something shift but we have to be aware of it first, maybe where it comes from, maybe not, maybe just that it's here, but we do have some agency over being able to shift it if we can shift our narrative. For some clients, if we hear that they have trauma off the bat, like even in the podcast, when Drew was talking about some of his traumatic experiences, you know, Meredith, early on, you were like, oh my God, how come you didn't ask about this? How come you didn't ask about that? You know, like his, his mom OD'd, like we weren't there yet. We didn't have that trust. And, and it's, I'm not going to push at that. I'm not going to bring up that trauma for the sake of looking at it. I'll bring it up when there's something else that happens in his life that's reminiscent of his mechanism and his narrative that he's been holding that whole time. And then we'll be able to look at it and connect it back. That's something that both of you guys probably do, maybe all of us do in our work, is recognizing when they're experiencing something, the mechanism or the narrative for them, the core belief for them, and and noticing it for them so they can have an awareness. If they make the connection, if they want to dig, then great, that's fantastic. If they don't, okay, I professionally, I'd say personally, but professionally, will mark it as that's a coping mechanism. That's okay for now. We can look at that some other time. If, if every time you feel dysregulated, you, you have a drink or you, or you smoke out. Okay. That's your defense. At, at some point we might want to look at that because we can, we can change that, but that's how you're taking care of yourself, how you're feeling that safety. 
I would say that maybe Jessica, in your work, people are a little more aware because they're coming to you with something that they actually feel in their body that they can present differently than just an emotion. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Oftentimes not. Oftentimes it's just Mm. nothing's helping me. In terms of the questions you asked, Meredith, (laughs) um, you know, some of what I then focus on is, you know, okay, so there's a lot of meaning making here. And if we set aside the meaning making and look at what it, what is the sensate experience when you say, I am a trauma survivor. I have trauma. I can't do these things because of trauma. Like what actually happens in the sensations and impulses in your body, because Mm -hmm. it is doing something. And and what you'll find Mm -hmm. if we can, and it's hard because it's a lot of like, okay, so that's the pull to the meaning. And if we set that aside just for a moment, we don't have to get rid of it, but if we just set it aside for the moment and notice the sensations in your body, what people will ultimately find is there's something that actually feels soothing about it. There's something right. that feels mm. good mm. and comforting and right. or strong or prote- whatever it may be. And then we get to allow the goodness of this seemingly bad pathological dysfunctional thing. We allow the goodness to be there. And in allowing the goodness to be there, something begins to change. Mm, I love that. Mm. Yeah. One other thing I think people wonder is, does trauma work just get tied up in a bow and like, oh, your trauma's all fixed. Yay. Like, how do you know when <laughs> you're ready to move on in your journey? Or Well, I, I should say I try to avoid the word trauma, actually. I, I, I don't oh. love that word. Is it traumatizing for you? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit actually the same thing, Meredith, you were asking. It kind of mm-hmm. pigeonholes and yep. then starts defining people and our experiences by this kind of arbitrary negative definition that maybe doesn't matter in terms of the defining of it. So, you know, Mm. for me, it's all about what's bringing you to this work. What are your goals? Mm -hmm. And then with regularity, revisiting that, where are we at with the goals you came with? And are we still working on that? Have we resolved that? And now there are new goals. There's no end to discovering kind of the fullness of ourselves in sure. my mind. And, right. and sort of connecting with one of your questions earlier about what even is a trauma, stubbing your toe or something really severe. It's really right. just how it, it's not what happened. It's what happened inside us. Oh. There can be this mm-hmm. endless discovery of different micro things that happened inside us that never quite fully integrated. And so some people, it just becomes an ongoing discovery of self. I mean, for me personally, I feel a professional responsibility to be in a continued ongoing process of this for myself, as long as I'm doing this work, no Mm. matter how full and balanced my life is, if I'm not continuing to discover Mm -hmm. how can I lead people through that. But then there are people that are like, wow, I all that debilitating stuff, I don't have anymore. I actually, I don't want to come in anymore. I want to live my life. So it's something that we figure out together in my mind. 
Yeah. Right. I, I like that frame because what I was saying before about the misconceptions of, of trauma work is one, that it'll open up the floodgates and too much will come out. And two, oh, that I'll heal from this trauma and everything will be fine. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, I think neither one of those is necessarily correct. And, and what we're talking about is something I think we're all, well, I know we're all committed to, because I know all three of you fairly well, is personal growth. It's an ongoing process. You don't just finish growing, go, cool, I'm done. I've made it. Like, no, you're, you're constantly improving, evolving, changing as life is, as we can see from this past year of having a pandemic, a lot of things just change drastically and we have to adjust. And it's when we find ourselves in old patterns, it's oftentimes containing and safe for us to be in that pattern because it's familiar, but it's not exactly how we want to live. And sometimes it isn't very safe. It's familiar, but it's very unsafe. And that's a narrative that we hold and something that will carry us through good or bad. It's how do we want to be doing it? And I think some of the work that I would think you guys do and, and you guys all experience is over time, you see it happening and develop in somebody. And then, you know, you sort of do a look back like over the last six months or where you were when you first came in and they go, oh my gosh, wow, I, I didn't realize, man, I'm so different than I was back then. Or wow, my narrative really has shifted because it happens gradually over time. And then they get to look back at it and see where they were and where they are. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, even for me, there are two different sides of the coin. I think BPD more than any other diagnosis I know makes people can make people feel really good. And they know they're like, Oh, fuck. Okay, I get it now. All these little behaviors I have are big behaviors. Now I know what it is or what I'm doing, you know, or I'm not crazy or there's that side of the coin where people just feel relief to know that there is something that's sort of causing it, if you will. And I think then the other thing is people freak out with the diagnosis. It sounds like the label of trauma can be really healing for some people, a relief. And then for some people, it can be the label can be like you sort of said, Jessica, like a negative connotation or something that isn't very helpful. Yeah. And it's, it's also what you were talking about, Meredith, before about people sort of wanting that trauma narrative and like, you know, holding on to that. And a lot of that, I think is right. That might be their safety or their, what just feels familiar, what they go to. It's sort of like somebody saying, yeah, I had a hard day, but you know, I had a couple of drinks and it was fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it wasn't, they just did something to cope with something and it's a coping strategy. And I think what we look at is when those coping strategies at some point no longer work, they're no longer as effective as they used to be because there's another effect of that, which is, I think, deeply rooted. It's just continuing a certain narrative and, and a certain way of being that isn't really how you want to be. Oh, this is all making me think so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of Thanks, this has just made us all think very much. I mean, I, 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 I love talking about this stuff. Oh. I could talk to you guys for, I mean, I talk to you guys individually a ton, but getting to talk like this, I think is, is fantastic because it's really, people throw around words like PTSD or trauma or abuse. And, and we don't really know what that is or what that means in the context of therapy. And I think just bringing some of it out and looking at it a little bit helps us understand it and helps us see that there are there are other modalities and other ways of, of looking at things. I mean, I know <laughs> Mona and I talk about all the time, 
I have a coffee table between me and my clients when we're in my office. Right? Money laughing because you're like, why, why do you have that? Why do you need that there? Why don't you, right? It's a barrier. It's a barrier. Right, right, right. Mona, you don't have one? I do not. I do, do you, not. Jessica? Like side tables, but I also do a lot of movement and I have babies oh, crawling. Right, and right. so coffee tables are just aesthetically pleasing in the layout of the room. I feel like, no, and <laughs> or is it an it unconscious barrier? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it, it works for some people because it no, is like yeah, a yeah. good boundary, right? It yeah. is like a say it's a, it's part of the therapeutic boundary. Right. That's really healing for a lot of therapists and clients too. But, uh, yeah, for, for me, especially with trauma, it's yeah. really important that I'm closer. This is why the yeah. pandemic is so painful, right? Oh, it's like, God. oh, yeah. it's so hard mm-hmm. to do video sessions. Oh, it's sure. doable. And thank God we have the technology yeah. to do it. But like the importance of the being in the presence of holding someone through this mm-hmm. process right, right. in the same mm-hmm. room that is contained is just so important. So it's, it's yeah. painful, but we, yeah. we're adapting. We adapt. Right. We are. And I'm, I'm grateful that we got to hold this space. I really appreciate you guys joining I us know. for this. Um, Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. So amazing. Yeah. Really fun. Yeah. This was Love fun. It. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do it again next week. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Thanks again. Yeah.